This morning, let us continue our worship by turning our attention to James chapter 5, verse 7 through 12. We're now at our second to last passage within the book of James. We read in James chapter 5, verse 7 through 12, Therefore, be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. The farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it, until it gets the early and late rains. You too be patient. Strengthen your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is near. Do not complain, brethren, against one another, so that you yourselves may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing right at the door. As an example, brethren, of suffering and patience, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. We count those blessed who endured. You have heard of the endurance of Job and have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings, that the Lord is full of compassion and is merciful. But above all, my brethren, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or with any other oath, but your yes is to be yes and your no, no, so that you may not fall under judgment. Let's pray. Father, as we come before your word, may your spirit teach us now. Help us understand this passage and its application for our lives today. In Jesus' name, amen. It is said that Hudson Taylor, the famous missionary to China, would tell others who desired to become missionaries in China that there were three indispensable requirements for a missionary. Number one, patience. Number two, patience. Number three, patience, right? Okay, that's patience was necessary for missionaries by, uh, to serve the Lord in China. But it's not the fact that only patience is required only of missionaries alone, but God requires all of his people to be patient, whether we are missionaries or not. And along similar lines, our passage this morning encourages us to patience, not just in the missions field, but in our world, in our daily lives. Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians 5.14 that we urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with everyone. Ephesians 4, chapter 1 to 2, talking about the walking in a manner worthy of our calling in Christ is to be done with patience. God knows that we need patience in this world, whether interacting with fellow believers or with unbelievers. In particular, though, we need patience in the midst of suffering and trials. It is most difficult, and we find it most challenging to be patient when we find ourselves under pressure, under the weight of burdens and under the weight of sins and temptations, under the weight of illnesses and disease, under the weight of financial worries and familial distresses. All these things cause us to lose our patience. We say, we often say, oh, my patience is thin when we are under trials. But those are times when we need more patience, more, more, more so. In a world cursed by sin, we all experience suffering and trials, don't we not? Sometimes it's because of our own sins. It's because of our own 
mistakes, our own choices that trials or suffering comes. But other times, suffering occurs as a result of others' sins because other people sin against us. But whatever the source, our resource for responding to trials comes through our faith in Jesus Christ. James, at the very beginning of his letter, wrote these words, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. See, patient endurance in the midst of trials was one of the very first traits that we learned that characterized genuine faith. That's faith that works, endures in trials. But now as we near the end of the letter, we come across a very similar concept, a similar thought once again. He returns to the subject of endurance or patience. And that is that faith that works is a faith that is patient in the midst of suffering and trials. If we have faith in Jesus Christ, then it should be manifest in our lives by patience. Are you a person that's characterized by patience? Would you say, I'm a patient person? When it comes to work, when it comes to difficult people, when it comes to difficult situations, are we patient people? We ought to be patient people if we are followers of Christ. As we look at our passage this morning, then we're going to study, uh, James encourages us, gives us encouragement for us as believers of Christ to be patient and endure in the midst of suffering. Three encouragements that we can learn from this passage that we've read this morning. First of all, James begins with the exhortation to patience. He exhorts us, he tells us, encourages us, commands us, in fact, to be patient. Now, before we can <clears throat> rightly interpret these verses, we have to be aware of the context, as, as usual. And so we just remind ourselves, because it's been several weeks since we looked in James, back in James chapter 5, verse 1 to 6, the immediate context, James has strongly reproved those rich landowners who basically were not using their, re- their riches and resources as they ought. They were given the responsibility as wealthy people before God are to use it to serve and minister to the needs of others. Well, they were being the complete opposite. They were being selfish. They were indulging themselves, and they were not looking out for their workers, the people who worked for them, the, 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 the people who worked the fields. In fact, they were taking advantage of them, withholding wages. And James, God through James it pronounces a strong condemnation and judgment, imminent judgment that was coming upon them. In fact, 5, 1 through 6 is the most harsh passage within all of James. It's very strong wording. The Lord of hosts is about to come and judge these wealthy who are not using their resources, their riches, as they ought to. And with this certainty of God's judgment upon these wicked, wealthy landowners, James now turns his attention back to the poor, the predominantly poor believers in Christ that he was writing to. These were probably those who were the victims of those rich landowners. And you will see in this passage, uh, James returns to calling his readers brethren. In fact, four times he's going to call them brethren, 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 my brethren. He kind of goes overdrive with that word brethren. We've seen it several places. Because he wants to comfort them as fellow believers in Christ. And so we see this exhortation for these believers to be patient. First of all, he calls them to be patient until the coming of the Lord. We read this in verse 7 through 8. Therefore, be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. The farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it until it gets the early and late rains. You too, be patient. Strengthen your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is near. 
The therefore in this passage connects this passage with the one before it, which we've just explained. The coming of the Lord means judgment for the wicked, of the, the wicked rich, but it also, on the conversely, means deliverance for the believing poor. Three times in this passage, in these two verses, we see the phrase, uh, the verb, be patient, being patient, be patient. In fact, that's the main idea. We'll see it in its, not only the word patience, but we'll see the word endurance, a, simon, a synonym to this word uh, repeated throughout this passage. While both are close in meaning, patience and endurance, patience is, patience is often defined as long-suffering toward a person. And endurance, on the other hand, is often defined as long-suffering in a particular circumstance. But they are interchangeable words in the Scriptures, but if we were going to try to differentiate them in some passages, maybe in perhaps this passage, we would differentiate them along those lines. Now, in our verse... The believer in the midst of suffering is called to be patient toward God as he or she waits for the coming of the Lord. It says, until the coming of the Lord. Now, the coming of the Lord here is a reference to the second return of the second return of Jesus Christ. Jesus, when he came as a man, was born as a, of a virgin, came to this world, walked on earth, and taught his disciples and pro- proclaimed the truth of the gospel. That was his first coming. But before Jesus left, he promised throughout his ministry that he would come again. In Matthew 16, 27, Jesus said, For the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father with his angels and will then repay every man according to his deeds. So not only did Jesus teach that he would return, but the early church expected Christ to return. In Acts chapter 1, verse 11, at Christ's ascension to heaven, the angels uh, who appeared to the disciples, the disciples saw Jesus go up into heaven. They, they appeared to them and they said this, this Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you have watched him go up into heaven. And so James instructs his readers then to wait patiently for the coming of the Lord when they would be delivered from their suffering. Being patient, however, is not easy. Especially not easy we don't know how long we have to wait. No one knows. Even Jesus, when he was on earth, did not know the date of his coming. He did not know when he would come with his angels. And in fact, 2,000 years have passed since that time that Jesus walked on earth, and still he has not yet returned. But for every generation, including ours today, we believe, because the scriptures say so, that Christ will return at any moment. But nevertheless, it's hard to be patient knowing, knowing patient, knowing that Christ is going to turn. But when? How long, O Lord, as the psalmist often asks, as opposed to why, O Lord? And James then encourages us with the illustration of a farmer. He tells us how a farmer prepares the land, sows the seed. And then when the farmer has done all that work, what does he do? He, he has to wait. He has to wait for the rains to come. The, the early rains and the late rains, the early rains serve the purpose of, of um, softening the ground so that he can sow. But then once he's sowed, he has to wait for the late rains to come and, and to, so that his, uh, to water his crop so that it can grow. But the farmer, what can he do to make it rain? Nothing, right? All he can do is wait. He just has to wait. Though his life 
His produce, all his life's work, his produce, his means of, of surviving are all bound up in the sea that is ground. He cannot do anything to make it rain. He has to wait. He has to be patient. And he does. He resigns himself to wait for the rain to come. That is the kind of patience. And if the farmer has that patience, that is the same kind of patience that we ought to have. We can do what we can to, on this world to endure, to strive, to, to, to understand why we go through trials, perhaps. We can try to understand the, biblically that trials and suffering exist because of sin in this sin-cursed world that we live in. But nevertheless, we can do nothing to bring about the return of Christ. We know he's coming, but we can only wait like the farmer. When we wait upon the Lord for his coming, it is an opportunity for us to exercise our faith. In fact, the whole mention of early and late rains, wherever it's mentioned in the Old Testament, is always a, you, you'll find that it always in the context of speaking of God's faithfulness. And so the rains as an imagery of God's faithfulness, that it comes every season, just as it pro, just on a reg, regularly, our response is to trust in that patience. And so when we have patience, it is, in the midst of suffering, it is an exercise of our faith in the faithfulness of Jesus Christ, that he said he would return. The angel said he would return. The apostle said he would return. And we believe he will return. And that's faith. That's trusting and believing what God has said. Now, a closely related command given in verse 8 is strengthen your hearts, James says. The idea is that one would be spiritually firm, that we would steady our hearts. Trials have a way of making, unsettling us. But as an act of faith in the Lord and trusting in him, we are to settle and make firm our hearts, that we would not waver or fall away in the midst of trials. Many times or we are tempted to, to fall away or to, to, to not trust in God or to question God in the midst of trials. In trials, and especially the trials that seem to have no end, those are the most trying upon our faith. And you and I will be tempted to wonder, why? Why me? How long? When? And yet, we may never know why. We may never know when and how long. Why me? But we do know who is in control, and we do know that the one who's in control is coming again, and he will make all things that are wrong in this life right. That is our faith in the faithfulness of Christ's coming. Be patient until the coming of the Lord, James says. But in addition to being patient, with the Lord until his coming. We are to be patient, according to verse 9, with one another. James exhorts his, re his readers to be patient with one another. Do not complain, brethren, against one another, so that you yourselves may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing right at the door. In the midst of trials, when we are under pressure, complaints against one another tend to become more likely. You know, it's just like when you're under stress, when you're under duress, you tend to kind of be less patient with others. And when you're less patient with others, then when people do things that you, you don't like, 
you tend to grumble or complain or, or get into conflicts with them. That's a very natural thing in life. It's a natural, it's part of our fallen nature. See, when we are under pressure, we tend to take it out on those near to us. How many times, I don't know you husbands out there, how many times have you had to say, oh, I'm sorry, wife, I, I, I was short-tempered with you because uh, I was pretty stressful. <laughs> That's a pretty stressful day at work. Uh, or is that just me? Okay, all right, nobody else did that. All right, okay. Um, well, don't do that then. But it happens. You're under stress, and you take it out on the ones you love. You ought not to, and we tend to, sometimes we do that with the ones we love here in the body of Christ. We complain against one another when we're under trials. To grumble here, or to complain here, here is to, literally to grumble, to groan. Uh, in the Old Testament, it connotes the, the frustration of the people of God who are suffering oppression or judgment. Perhaps here, the idea is that it, it takes the form of uh, when we groan or complain, we're really blaming others for our trials. We're accusing them of being the reason for why we're going through our difficulties, or we're accusing them of making it worse for ourselves. Don't they understand why they make it so difficult for me? They're so uncaring. Uh, they did this, and uh, where is the church? They're not around my life. Where's those fellow Christians? It's because they do this or that. They make it tough for me. But this is not just true for our time period, but it's true even in the, third, in the early church period. Uh, in our church history class, couple weeks ago, we, we learned about in the third century when Christians were persecuted by the Roman Empire, some Christians ended up capitulating uh, to the pressure, and they ended up basically denying Christ and offering, you know, they're forced basically to, to offer sacrifices to the Roman idols, the Roman gods. Uh, they would, they'd even get a certificate to prove that they did so. Um, but you can imagine and understand when that, when that persecution ended, and believers then repented, and they, they really wanted to return to the church to come become a part of it again. Those believers who did not, who actually endured suffering, endured the trials, they began complaining and grumbling about those who, did, who, who had capitulated. And it created a great divide within the body of Christ during those times. It was an example of how the pressure of suffering led to grumbling against one another. And that can happen in our days as well. We have many things that pressure this church. Uh, perhaps the, the biggest pressure of in recent, in probably the past couple of years, has been just the, the, the pressure of us going through a building project, right? Many of you have been aware. And it's because of the building project, I can imagine that among some of us, it's been a temptation to grumble, right? No? Oh, good. But if you did grumble, that's why, because of this, the pressure of going through a long-term huge, significant building project that involved a significant amount of our resources and time. We thank God for those who gave their, gave their energies to the building project. But we, are, we recognize as, as shepherds that when we go through trials, or it, which it was a trial of sorts, that that was a temptation even for our body to grumble and complain. And we ought not to do that. We ought to be patient with one another. James reminds us if we're not patient with one another, if we are grumbling, complaining, which is another form really of, of slandering or speaking against one another, James tells us that the judge is standing at the door, that Christ, when he comes, he's the judge. He's about to come. He's standing there. He will judge those who grumble against their brother or sister. 
And I don't think we want to be judged by the Lord. See, trials and suffering have a way of tempting us to grumble and complain against our fellow believers. But James exhorts us in the midst of suffering to be patient, knowing that Jesus is coming again soon. And Jesus, when he comes soon, will make all things wrong, right. Yes, it's hard to be patient. Sometimes we'll feel like we're alone in our suffering. But so James encourages us in the next point, verses 10 to 11, with examples of patience. Examples of patience in verses 10 through 11. He gives two examples for us. First of all, he gives the example of the prophets. He says, as an example, as an example of patience, that is, brethren, of suffering and patience, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Here's another command. He says, this is actually a command. He says, you want an example? Take the prophets as your example. Imitate their example. It's not just to look at their example, but to follow their example. Be inspired by their example. Be encouraged by their example. The word example here is used by Jesus in John 13, 15, when he washed the disciples' feet. He says, for I gave you an example that you also should do as I did to you. Examples are meant to be followed. They're meant to be imitated. And James mentions here, for us to follow the examples of the prophets. Now, he doesn't mention any specific prophet. He mentions the prophets in general. So we, basically, he just says, look at all the Old Testament prophets together. Look at their lives together, and look at the example that they give to us. And the common characteristic, as he describes, of these prophets is that they all spoke in the name of the Lord. The implication is that their suffering and patience took place in the context of them carrying out their prophetic ministry. The wicked persecuted the prophets who spoke to them in the name of the Lord. In Hebrews chapter 11, the great chapter, that hall of faith chapter, we saw men and the women of faith who live by faith. In verses 32 to 38, the author lists what the various judges and prophets endured by faith. He kind of just says, I ran out of time. But I'm just going to mention a whole bunch of names. And yeah, you know how they live by faith. So he just kind of mentions a bunch of them. But in verse 37, he, he kind of just kind of starts listing. He doesn't even list the people anymore. He just lists the various acts that they did. And this is characterized as the prophets. They were stoned, Zechariah. They were sawn in two, tradition says Isaiah. They were tempted, oh, all of them tempted. You can think of uh, uh, to, to sin. They were put to death with a sword, a, a prophet named Uriah. They went about in sheepskins, in goatskins, perhaps this is maybe Elijah, he was dressed really funny, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated. These are all the prophets. Jeremiah, Daniel is uh, uh, among these prophets, and they all endured and suffered with, because of their ministry of pro- to proclaiming the truth of God in the name of the Lord. And yet, in the midst of their trials, they demonstrated great patience. They demonstrated faith in the Lord in the midst of the trials. See, the life of the Old Testament prophets reminds us that doing God's will will often lead to suffering. And when you and I live, do God's will, it will often lead to suffering. Last week, we heard a great encouragement from, uh, from the scriptures, 1 Peter 1, about the, the, the reality of trials and that they will come. We should not be surprised when persecution as a result following the Lord comes upon us in our lives. But in our response in those times is to patiently wait upon the Lord to convene, intervene. 
like the prophets, our response is, is, should not be to stop speaking the truth, nor stop speaking out against evil. But we should continue speaking the truth. We should continue proclaiming in the name of the Lord. We should continue telling others of what the scriptures of God, what God says in the scriptures. Why? Because our, we love the world just as God loved the world. And what the world needs is not the church to be quiet, but the church to speak even louder of the truth of the gospel when we, under, when we experience persecution. Sometimes suffering is clearly a result of persecution for our faith. But there are other times the reason is not so clear. And so James gives us a, sec- a second example to help in such times. He gives us the example of Job in verse 11. He writes in verse 11, We count those blessed who endured. You have heard of the endurance of Job and have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings. And the Lord is full of compassion and is merciful. The beginning sentence here is reminiscent of Jesus' words in Matthew 5, 11 to 12. But it's also an echo of what James wrote earlier in chapter 1, verse 12. When he wrote, Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial. For once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Blessed are those who endure. They shall receive the crown of life. They shall receive the reward that is characterized by life itself. To persevere and to endure, these two words, they're actually the same, ver- they're the same root word, the same Greek word, in fact. Uh, you can check that out. They convey the idea of remaining under. Pressure has a sense, feel, is, is like, and trials are like a weight that, we weigh, that weigh upon our shoulders. But to, pers- to persevere, uh, to be patient, to endure, is to remain under that. Not to try to get out of it, even though that's our natural soul, but to, to just remain under, to endure it. However, I want to add that to endure is not just to grin and bear it. It's not just to grit your teeth and maybe that endure, they can endure the pain and the, and the, the challenge of the suffering that you experience. To endure is to keep on trusting in the Lord throughout our trial all the way to the end. And so James reminds his readers of the endurance of Job. And Job is, I think, a very familiar example to all of us. A familiar story found in the Old Testament is considered the, uh, by many the oldest Old Testament book, the oldest, or at least the record of the, of the historically is the oldest, well, except for Genesis 1-11. But Job is considered the oldest. Um, the story of Job goes, uh, many of you, uh, just in case for those of you who don't know it, uh, that Job was a blameless, upright man who feared God and turned away from evil. So he was a righteous man. And he was, God blessed him with riches. God blessed him with a family. And so one day, Satan appeared before God and said, you know, Job basically worships you and serves you. He, he does all those things. He's, he's righteous because, well, he's just, he's just thankful for all the things you gave him. If you just take away all those things you gave him, then he's going to curse you. So God gave Satan permission to basically take away all of Job's blessings. He took away all his riches, took away his children, all his children, and all that was left was his wife and himself. 
And then on top of that, eventually Satan took away even Job's health. He was covered with sore boils all up and down his body so that he had to actually, to, just to relieve his pain, he would scrape himself with a potsherd. But throughout all that, we, read in, we would read in Job, and we, we, we sang in, even in the song today, that the, Job remained in trusting in the Lord. He did not sin. He did not curse God. He recognized that he stated, blessed is the Lord. The Lord gave, the Lord, take, the Lord has taken away, but blessed be the name of the Lord. That's what Job said in the midst of his trials. In the midst of trials, we would think, if we were going, enduring like that, we would think, wow, maybe I, I'd be sorely tempted, as Job's wife encouraged him to, curse God and just die and you'll be relieved of your suffering. But Job did not. He did not. So he endured. His faith endured through it all. It's not that he never, and I love Job, the rest of Job, because it shows Job being real. You know, Job's like, just like, oh, I'm enduring. No, Job actually wrestles with it. He wrestles with it. He asks God, why? Why is this happening to me? In fact, Job never knows why. And that's the worst thing. And perhaps you go through trials and you, and you wonder, why, Lord? Why me? Why is this happening? And God's not going to give you the answer. You just don't know. It's not because of sin. It's not because of persecution. Maybe it's because of spiritual warfare, but you'll not know why. And Job is an example of us to, inst- to patiently endure when you don't know why. Because the Lord is the Lord. The Lord gives all your blessings he's given to you. The Lord has a right to take them all away. For the Lord is still God. And hopefully we would say, blessed be the name of the Lord. You may never know why, but God in his compassion and mercy will reward you as you endure. He'll reward you in the end. And that reward can occur in this life as it was for Job. Job was, because, uh, was actually by God restored. He restored all his wealth, restored and gave more children than before. But for many of us, that reward will not come until Christ comes again to take us to be with him in heaven. Lastly, we look find a, a third encouragement to patience and suffering. We find in verse 12, and it's the expression of patience. I'm, I'm not sure. I'm still not sure if that's the best word to put, but I'll call it the expression of patience. Verse 12, we read, but above all, above all, so this is, this is the most important even, above all that James has said up to this point in this passage, he says, but above all, my brethren, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or with any other oath, but your yes is to be yes and your no, no, so you may not fall under judgment. This clearly comes from Jesus' words in Matthew 5, verse 33 through 37, about not taking, not making, uh, taking an oath and then not fulfilling it, of simply saying, let our yes be yes, let a no be all. Just simply state what we will do and what we will not do. He had taught kingdom citizens how they ought not to make vows and then not keep them. And while this is, I think when we look at verse 12 by itself, it's pretty simple and straightforward to what it says. Don't make a false vow. Don't make a false oath. Don't, you know, swear I'm going to do this, and then you don't do it. But yet, there is some disagreement by this, uh, the scholars as to whether verse 12 belongs with uh, verses 7 through 11, which I take here, or it belongs with the passage that follows. Uh, but I believe 
that this passage belongs with verse 7 to 11 because of, of the mention of judgment here, which is already uh, continuing the context of this whole passage of Christ's return, to not only to judge but to bless. And then even verse 9 talks about judgment. And so we see this continuing theme of judgment. And then also the structure of this passage, the, the, the short statement of my brethren with a command. We've seen it three times in this passage already. Now this is the fourth time. And so that kind of the pattern as well as the mention of judgment, the theme, uh, makes it seem that to me that it fits better with 7 through 11, though uh, some make good arguments for making it fit with verses 13 through 18. But the major difficulty then, when you look at this verse, that it says, do not make a false vow, or do not swear, is the question is this, what does this have to do with being patient in the midst of suffering? Why, why did James say, when you're, when you're suffering and, and you need to be patient, most of all, above all, don't make any false vows. Okay. <laughs> I, you know, last time I was suffering, I wasn't thinking, well, I didn't think about, well, making some false vow to the Lord. That didn't come to my, well, that's, that didn't come as a first inclination to me. And James, for, for whatever reason, doesn't give us any background. He doesn't give us anything explicit. So commentators write many pages about this question. Uh, and I'm going to give you the answer, though. Uh, and so, but we can't be dogmatic because we're kind of just reading in between the blank spaces here. Okay. But we can think of three possible connections between making a false vow and um, being patient in the midst of suffering. Number one, a believer in the midst of suffering May vow, to God, may vow to God to do something if God would deliver him from suffering. This is Jephthah's vow, right? Jephthah, the judge and, the, and Judges 1130, vowed, Lord, if you deliver us from the wicked people, I'm going to sacrifice the first thing that comes out of my house to you. That's, that's a false That's a vow. Well, he actually kept his vow, I, I believe. But that's a rash vow, making a vow to bargain with God. Number two, another possibility is a believer in the midst of suffering may in fear make a vow denying the Lord. Perhaps we're under persecution, and we're persecuted. Well, are you a believer? Uh, we, think, we read about, in our church history class, we read about many believers who were forced to, uh, we think about the early two deaconesses were, who were tortured by this governor of Bithynia, Pliny, and how he tortured them and asked them about, you know, he's, and he's writing about how he had tortured, he asked them, are you believers in Christ? He gives them three opportunities to deny Christ. Well, perhaps some believers would make a vow to deny. And we think of this as Peter's vow. Peter, on the night when, when he was accused a couple of times, Are you, you're one of them, you're one of them, you're one of them. No, I swear I do not know that man, is what Peter said, which made uh, it so hard for him. Number three, another possibility of a vow applying to is that a believer in the midst of suffering may in desperation make a vow in order to deceive or steal from a neighbor. We don't find a particular example, any particular example of this, but this is possibly measure under persecution. These are poor believers. They're being persecuted, and they can't maybe steal from the rich, but they may be tempted to steal from people around them, their fellow poor people. And they may make vows, oh, I'm going to pay you back, or I swear this is going to happen, I'll, I'll, get, you, I'll get you back later, I'm just going to take this, or some kind of disform and deception. And we find this kind of the close connection between this in Leviticus 19, verse 11 to 12. Verse 12 is the, is the command, the law of not swear, making a false vow. Verse 11 is don't deceive, don't steal from your neighbor. There seems to be a close connection, possible connection between those. And so, again, we can't be dogmatic which one of these things is, but all these are possible. All these are different ways that one can make a vow 
really a vow to God, as God is my witness, using God's name essentially in vain to bargain or to get out to minimize our suffering. And the point is that patience is suffer, in suffering is not going to shorten God's work by making a vow in order to minimize or eliminate the suffering in one's life. That in order for us to be patient, to endure in suffering, it means we're not going to be trying to, we're not going to try to bargain with God. Trying to, God, I promise you, I'm, I'm going to do this. Or one of the other possible ways of, that we try to bargain with God. We use God to get out of trials, to get out of suffering. Now, certainly we can do what we can, but we ought not to make vows, uh, rash vows before the Lord to try to get out, to, to shortchange, what God, to shorten what God is doing through trials in our life. Because perhaps we're being tested, just like Job was, to bring glory to him. But when we sin to get out of that trial, we do not bring him glory. We deprive God of the glory that he deserves. Patience is expressed as we wait upon the Lord, not making vows to try to get out of them in some way. Now, these are three reasons, three encouragements for us to be patient in the midst of suffering and trials. And, I, and this is all, in James's days, it was in the context of suffering under the oppression of rich landowners. But we can, of course, apply this in generally and broadly to us as we go through trials, as we go through various different trials. And in this world, we will go through trials. In fact, in this world, you probably are going, you are going through trials. Some of you will experience trials as the consequence of sin in your life. Others of you will experience suffering in the form of persecution as you follow Christ. And then still others of you will simply not know why. There will be no answers why until Christ returns. But the suffering is real nevertheless. And for the believer in Christ, James encouraged you to be patient, to endure, to keep putting your trust in the Lord. Number one, because your Lord is coming back soon and he will make all things right. And number two, because you have many examples of faithful saints who've gone before us to imitate, for you to imitate those who were in the same predicament as you and yet they endured and they were rewarded though they did not see Christ in this life. Sadly, as a pastor, I've seen too many not endure in the midst of suffering and trials. A sickness comes and they fall away. Sin overwhelms them, they fall away. Unemployment is long. Singleness is hard. Infertility is too challenging. Family troubles, painful. Failure in work or education, shameful. And believers, those professing faith in Christ, sometimes fall away. And I, as a pastor, often pray that they would return. 
Maybe they won't return to this church, but I pray that they will return to Christ. If they, and if they are, they will. Are you going through some of these trials or even more difficult trials? Do not fall away. Do not forsake the Lord. Be patient. Endure. For the Lord your God is coming again soon. And he will make all things that are wrong in this life right. If we need more further encouragement, we just not only need to look to Jesus Christ once again. Last week we heard about from 1 Peter... And I think the, the passage that we read in the beginning of our, ser- our service is a fitting passage to read even now. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 19 and 23, For this finds favor, if for the sake of conscience toward God a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. For what credit is there if when you sin and are harshly treated you endure it with patience? But if when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. For if you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin or was any deceit found in his mouth, and while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. Let's follow Jesus' example. Let's keep entrusting ourselves to him who judges righteously, our Lord who is coming soon. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Thank you for these truths. And we thank you especially for the promise that Jesus is coming again soon. Father, in this world there are so many pains and so many sufferings, so many trials. Not only as a whole, but even in our own personal lives. And we are tempted often to, to, to doubt, tempted to question. We're tempted to fall away, Lord. Father, we know that you allow these trials for a purpose. We remember the endurance of Job. We remember how you reward those who endure. Blessed are those who endure. And we pray that we would, as people, as men and women of faith, endure, remain under by your grace, by the strength that you give. Help us to be patient, Lord, to experience that that fruit of the Spirit as you dwell within us, that we would then see in due time you glorified and we who belong to you rewarded and blessed because we will find ourselves in your presence because Jesus is going to come for us and he will make all things that are wrong in this world right. Father, until then, Help us to learn to be patient. Thank you for the faith that you give us, for we know that this only comes through faith. A faith that works is a faith that is patient. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.